0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An overhaul of the U.S. tax code could become reality in as little as two weeks, according to congressional Republicans. The House and Senate must hash out their differences. Today, we'll find out how the two plans affect Coloradans in particular. In a little bit, what could happen to health coverage? First, I'm joined by The Denver Post's Washington correspondent, Mark Matthews. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You wrote a piece about the things Coloradans should watch in these tax plans. The deficit was one of them. Another was the different tax that our two U.S. senators are taking. So let's start there. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that the Senate version would add $1.4 trillion to the deficit in the next decade. What are we hearing from Republican Senator Cory Gardner about that? And what is Democrat Michael Bennett saying?
1: So right now, uh, Gardner is saying that you know he he recognizes that although he's making the argument that a lot of Republicans here in Washington are that these cuts ultimately will pay for themselves that economic growth will cover these will will cover these tax cuts. Uh, a number of different analysts, most analysts, including the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is uh, which is nonpartisan, they're paid by Congress to do this analysis, and even they don't agree. From what they say that. Even if you incorporate all these economic gains from these, like what's called dynamic st- scoring, if yep. you incorporate all of that, you're still looking at a trillion dollar deficit as opposed to 1.4 trillion. So at this point, Democrats such as Michael Bennett see this as a, an attack point. They're pointing out, they say that this is, you know, fisc- fiscally not, not responsible and they, they worry about what comes next. And you're starting to see a lot of talk here in the hallways and around the Capitol Hill that the next, the next piece of agenda is looking at uh, what President Trump referred to as welfare reform. Entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid is a potential way to, to fill that gap. And that has Democrats very concerned.
0: That the social safety net might suffer as a result. I'll say that we had an interview scheduled with Senator Gardner this week, again, from the majority party here. uh, But his office had to cancel that uh, about a half hour before, saying his schedule had to be completely reworked. And they said they'd be in touch soon with some additional options. Uh, We asked on Twitter what questions Coloradans have about the emerging, emerging tax overhaul. And Travis Green of Denver asks... Why do tax cuts for families and individuals have expiration dates, but the corporate tax cuts are permanent? What do you know?
1: So so right now, so the uh, Senate Republicans and and the the Congress, they're trying to fit within this box. They have there's there's only a certain amount that they can spend given congressional rules. And so to help fit within that gap. They had a choice of trying to limit some of the corporate taxes or or limit uh, the personal taxes. And at this point, they kind of they chose to to keep going the corporate taxes in the idea that perhaps some of the economic gains from that would, would trickle down. And as we all know, the trickle-down theories is a very controversial term, controversial way of way of approaching and paying for things. But right now, it feels like that we're almost kind of refighting some of the economic debates of the 1980s.
0: Oh, and this will likely be front and center as the House and Senate hash out their plans. Uh, another big issue that they must resolve is the federal deduction for state and local taxes. The Senate version Originally called for a full repeal of that deduction, but was later amended to preserve a deduction for property taxes. We reached out to CU Boulder economist Jeffrey Zacks. He says if the state and local tax deduction were fully
1: repealed. Then state and local government would become more expensive to all of us. That is, in addition to the tax payments that we make to our state and local governments, we would also have to make a tax payment to the federal government on the amount of money that we pay to our state and local governments. That additional tax payment to the federal government,
2: that's what's at stake here.
0: And while taxes in Colorado are relatively low, he says, the impact could still be significant. He did some math for us, for someone who's taxed at the federal level at, say, 30 percent.
1: So if you pay $4,000 in total taxes to, say, the city of Denver and the state of Colorado and the various school districts and special districts and all the other districts that you're part of, if that's $4,000 that you give to the state and local governments, you're going to give another Twelve hundred dollars to the federal government in federal income tax payments. That's actually a lot of money.
0: So, Mark, how are lawmakers working through this in Washington?
1: Well, right now, there's been some opposition from states that really benefit from this: New York, New Jersey, California. There's a lot. There was a lot of opposition, particularly on the House side, for this because their constituents would would take a beating uh, if that ends up happening. Uh, States like Colorado, a little bit less so. But but you're still seeing some opposition. I mean, one of the the big impacts you're going to see here in Colorado potentially is the housing boom along the front range that this 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 bill might in some ways act as a little bit as a, a as a chill on that. And, and the reason for that is how these bills, how's the House bill and the Senate bill address things such as more mortgage interest deduction. right uh, Right now, you can deduct uh, um, interest payments for the first million dollars of a mortgage. Uh, the house puts that it cuts that in half to about 500,000 and the senate still keeps it at a million but related to those local taxes uh you can now only deduct about $10,000 for your lo- local property taxes and so the the uh, realtors right now they're they're concerned that this kind of double whammy is is really going to have an impact because they're about in Colorado. About seven in ten homeowners carry a, a mortgage, like a mortgage in that group, and nearly one in five have one. That's about that's that's above five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So
0: if you think about yeah. how expensive housing is getting along, especially the Front Range, uh, it could be that people considered middle class have homes worth five hundred thousand dollars or more.
1: Absolutely. And another potential change is how capital gains are assessed. And so basically, if you want to kind of benefit, you're going to have to stay in your home longer. So if you're looking to buy a house and flip it, this is going to make it a lot more difficult.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are getting a sense for what effects the GOP tax plans might have specifically on Colorado I'm joined by the Washington correspondent for the Denver Post. He is Mark Matthews, and he joins us from D.C. So I want to go to uh, something of a narrower constituency, but an important one in Colorado. Brewers stand Mm -hmm. to benefit with a tax cut. So Bob Pease is president of the Brewers Association in Boulder. He says, if kept in the plan, brewers as well as vintners and distillers would get a break on their taxes per barrel.
2: The beer portion of the bill is very significant. It would lower the federal excise tax payment for 99%, 98% of the breweries that are located in Colorado. It would lower their excise tax payment by 50%. It would go from $7 a barrel to $3.50 a barrel.
0: But it's not just small brewers. Large companies like uh, AB InBev, Coors, Odell, New Belgium would get relief, too.
2: They would see their excise tax rate go from the current rate of $18 a barrel, which they pay on every barrel, to $16 a barrel on their first 6 million barrels of production. So for a brewery like AB InBev or Miller Coors, they're going to get a $12 million federal excise tax reduction.
0: As I understand it, Mark, this tax break only appears in the Senate version so far, but it looks like it has strong support.
1: That's correct. And this is the result of what's been a long-standing beer battle here on Capitol Hill that you for a long time, you had the microbreweries. They were fighting with the big guys, you know, over these tax breaks. And finally, and, and, and what the all the staffers told them was like, look, you guys got to work it out. If you don't work it out, we're not going to help either of you. And so this this tax break basically is a compromise. So you have uh, – there's the, a big, big break for the microbreweries, which make up the vast majority of the 300 or so breweries in Colorado, one of the highest in the country. But it also gives a little bit of a tax break for the first six, six million barrels for importers or local producers. So anybody who makes beer basically mm. could, could benefit from this, although cer- certainly the microbreweries, uh, they, the, they have the best – the most to gain from this.
0: Let's step back from from this and just ask more broadly, from your vantage point, are special interests jockeying like crazy to get something out of this tax plan? I mean, you have to imagine that if there's something for brewers, there's something for uh, you know 110 other <laughs> industries. Oh,
1: oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if there's one industry that's doing very well right now, it's K Street. I mean, any, and that's why there's always been such a uh, a trouble and challenge to doing tax reform. L- lobbyists because... are saying. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, the K Street lobbyists, because they're the ones always like, like they they get paid to do this. They, they get paid to try to influence these bills. I mean, if you another example, like look at look at energy right now, uh, renewable energy, solar, wind. And there is a debate even about what to do uh, with wind wind energy tax credits. So the House version. So there's a wind energy house credit like uh, tax credit right now that's supposed to encourage. Uh, this industry to get going, which is big for Colorado. Yep. Uh, but what ends up what the House bill ends up doing ends up shortening that. It, it, it cuts it back a little bit so that there, this, this break won't be available for as long. And the Senate says, no, no, we're going to keep this. So that's something else that they're going to have to work out in conference. These types of very small, industry-driven debates. Th- think of the beer guys again. All these, int- like, internal industry debates, this, like, multiply that by a thousand. Yeah. This is what the, the tax writers are going to have to do.
0: So the House and Senate passed their respective plans in, in roughly the span of five weeks. And critics certainly say the process hasn't been nearly as open or public as it should be. Uh, from your long experience in D.C., have you seen legislation of this magnitude that affects this much of the economy and this, this many Americans move so swiftly through the halls?
1: Well... Well, uh, you could just actually rewind about six months or so, maybe even less, for the healthcare debate where you saw, uh, especially on the Senate side, no one knew what the language was until the last minute. And then that was put out there and it was very quick. So beyond this year, pretty rare. But this is kind of in line with what we're looking at this year in terms of how, how how Congress has been operating.
0: Thanks so much for being with us. All right. Thank you. Mark Matthews is Washington correspondent for the Denver Post. More now on how the GOP tax bills may affect Coloradans, specifically now their health care coverage. The Senate bill in particular takes aim at a key provision of the Affordable Care Act. I'm joined now by Larry Levitt. He's a health policy expert with the Kaiser Family Foundation. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. So the Senate bill would get rid of the fine people have to pay for not getting health insurance. How is that expected to affect the cost of insurance for consumers?
3: Uh, That's right. I mean, a key piece of the Affordable Care Act was the so-called individual mandate to try and get healthy people to sign up for insurance uh, to offset the cost of people with pre-existing conditions who are now guaranteed coverage. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office has analyzed the effect of, of repealing the, the penalty uh, and believes that it would have two main effects. One is that it would increase premiums by an average of 10% for people who buy insurance on their own. Uh, and the second is that more people would end up uninsured, ultimately 13 million more people. Uh, would end up without health insurance coverage, without that penalty.
0: I think the CBO and the Joint Committee on Taxation also, though, find that it would reduce federal deficits by quite a bit over about a decade, right?
3: Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's one of the main appeals of, of doing this uh, repeal of the individual mandate penalty in the tax bill is it uh, saves the federal government $318 billion, mainly because fewer people would have insurance and that would lower the cost to the federal government of, of providing that insurance. So, you know, that, that gives uh, Republicans $318 billion of money to play with Uh, In this tax bill.
0: But as you say, the trade off would be more uninsured and higher premiums for those on the individual market. Um, Would taking away the penalty, essentially ending the mandate to buy health care coverage, have a different effect on a state like Colorado that has set up its own health insurance exchange?
3: Well, you know there have been a number of steps the the Trump administration has taken uh, uh, around the affordable care act which which states like Colorado, which run their own exchanges, uh, have been able to uh, to offset to to some extent so for example, uh, the Trump administration uh, cut back on outreach by by ninety percent, uh, but that only applies in the federal marketplace, not in state based exchanges like like Colorado. Uh, the individual mandate is a little bit different in that it would uh, tend to destabilize insurance markets everywhere. Uh, some states like Colorado could uh, mitigate that by doing uh, extra outreach uh, to make sure people understand that the the subsidies uh, that low-income people get to help them pay their premiums uh, and deductibles are, are still available, and that can – you know, potentially offset the uh, the effect of the the penalty to some extent, but uh, but but even states like Colorado will still will still see some negative effects.
0: It's interesting, though, that despite the Trump administration wanting to undercut Obamacare, the advertising of open enrollment, Colorado has seen steady growth in its enrollment from year to year. Is it possible that a state, Colorado in particular, could say, you know what, if the individual mandate is repealed at the federal level, we're going to pass a state version of it.
3: Uh, they they absolutely could i mean you know Massachusetts had an individual mandate uh even before the affordable care act passed uh Washington DC which which operates its own exchange as well has been talking about imposing uh its own individual mandate penalty uh so cert- certainly that's something Colorado could consider um you know it's a tough i think it it it's tough politics in some sense uh the individual mandate was passed in the Affordable Care Act, as part of a larger bill that provided a lot of benefits to people, you know, a debate focused solely on the individual mandate might be tough. But mm. you know, th- th- these negative effects provide some very uh, clear indication of, of uh, you know, what repealing the mandate will mean. Um, and and uh, polling we've done shows that, yeah, you know, while the individual mandate is the most unpopular part of the Affordable Care Act uh when you uh tell people about some of the negative effects of repealing it uh it's it's not quite as unpopular and in fact people uh majority of people support it
0: has the individual mandate done what it's supposed to do i mean and you you said at the outset there that its goal was to make sure that the pool of insured wasn't just sick people that it spreads the risk has it has it done that
3: well you know it's very hard to tease out the effect because oh. you know it's it's hard to separate the effect of the mandate from uh, for example the the subsidies that help people pay their premiums the the so-called carrot um, but I, I'd say it's fair to say that the individual mandate has underperformed that it just hasn't done as much as people expected in trying to get healthy people to enroll uh, and some of that may have been that uh, it just hasn't been enough time yet um, the individual mandate was phased in over three years uh, the penalty was uh, and the penalty only reached its full effect in in 2016 um, and there's a, a kind of delayed effect of the mandate you know you 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 Uh, If you don't sign up for insurance, you will end up paying the penalty, uh, but you don't necessarily find that out until you file your taxes the next year. Um, so it may, take some, it may take some more time, uh, which we we may not get, uh, to, to see whether the individual mandate could really be fully effective. Right. If
0: it is repealed as part of this tax plan, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Larry Levitt is a health policy expert at the Kaiser Family Foundation. We're talking about what the GOP tax bills might mean for health care coverage in this state. And I want to say that one Republican senator was worried about what all this might mean for insurance in her state. And so she got guarantees from Senate leadership that in exchange for her vote on the tax bill, they they would vote on two bills meant to shore up health insurance markets. Can you just briefly explain what those two bills would do, some of the brokering here?
3: Sure. And I I think the most important bill in this respect is one that uh, Senator Susan Collins from Maine uh, and Democratic Senator Nelson uh, have put forward and it would uh, provide what's called reinsurance which is kind of insurance for insurance companies um, it would put federal money into covering part of the cost of very expensive patients uh, and that would allow insurers to lower premiums uh, and what this reinsurance would do is is mitigate the effect of the premium increases resulting from from the individual mandate uh, you know it wouldn't do anything to offset the potential increase in the number of people uninsured. Uh, but it could, it could offset the, uh, the increase in, in premiums.
0: And pre- Presumably, um, some of the folks who are uninsured in this new world are do, doing so by choice. In other words, if they don't have to pay the penalty, they're choosing to go uninsured. Tell us about this second bill that's part of the, the horse trading
3: yeah the, the the second bill is uh, is a bipartisan bill. It's uh put forward by Senator uh, Alexander, a Republican and Senator Murray, uh, a Democrat. Um, and it's really aimed at offsetting. Uh, or re- reversing a decision the Trump administration made uh, to terminate payments to insurance companies to compensate them for providing lower deductibles and copays to low-income consumers. Uh, the Trump administration uh, recently terminated those payments, and that's led to big premium increases. Um, and this bill would uh, w- would reverse that decision and-, and provide those payments to insurance companies.
0: Some of these things, uh, our own governor John Hickenlooper. Has uh, asked the Trump administration for as well, I'll say. And I imagine that those bills, even if they do come up for a vote, aren't a shoo-in to pass, especially in the House. Uh, but let's say they do pass as part of this bigger tax deal. Would they have the sort of stabilizing effect that uh, this senator and group of senators is hoping for?
3: Yeah, I think the the reinsurance bill certainly would. The Alexander Murray bill is is less clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mo- most insurers, uh, in some cases, at the direction of of states like Colorado, um, responded to the termination of these these payments uh, from the federal government uh, by increasing premiums only on so called uh, silver plans. Uh, and these silver plans are important because they are the benchmark for the premium subsidies that are provided to to low and middle income people. So the the way insurers and states have responded to the Trump administration's action have largely left consumers, uh, uh, held consumers harmless uh, from the premium increases. So this Alexander Murray bill wouldn't do as much as I, I think we might have thought a few months ago, uh, before we saw how how insurers implemented uh, their reaction to it.
0: Larry, we got a question on Twitter about how mental health coverage might be affected by the cuts that are proposed in these tax plans. Anything stand out to you when it comes to mental health care?
3: Well, you know, there's, a, there's another uh, piece to all of this, as if it's not uh, complicated enough, uh, <laughs> which is the uh, uh, President Trump uh, issued an executive order recently, uh, calling for an expansion in more loosely regulated insurance plans. These are, for example, uh, short-term insurance plans um, that don't have to follow uh, the same rules uh, as the Affordable Care Act requires mm-hmm. for, uh, for, for other plans. Uh, one of those rules are the essential benefits, the 10 categories of benefits that insurers have to provide. Um, and if you look at these short-term plans uh, that are out there, uh, one category. There are a couple categories of benefits that they typically do not cover. One is mental health uh, and substance use treatment, uh, and the other is is maternity care. Uh, so if we see a real expansion, uh, in these less regulated short term plans, uh, it could make the availability of of services like mental health and maternity uh, more expensive for people
0: These are so called bare bones plans. The trade off of course, is that they 'd be cheaper, I suppose uh, There are some other health care related provisions in the tax plans, like one for catastrophic medical bills. Right now, if you itemize, you can deduct huge medical bills. Um, the Senate and House bills both change this, but in really different ways. Uh, briefly, how would each of those plans affect consumers? And, and do you expect the the House and Senate to reconcile these differences?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the House really stepped into a, a very controversial territory by repealing the, the medical expense deduction. Uh, and this deduction now allows people uh, who have health care expenses exceeding 10% of their income to deduct uh, those expenses. And, you know, ten percent of income is a lot of money. Um, this particularly uh, has been valuable to uh, to middle income families, particularly those uh, who have uh, are, are helping a family member who's in a nursing home uh, mm-hmm. and facing very big expenses um, or a disabled uh, family member. Um, the uh, The Senate bill, uh, particularly after the in the in the aftermath of the controversy that erupted around the House proposal uh, uh would keep the medical expense deduction and actually make it more generous for a couple of years, uh, lowering the threshold to seven and a half percent of income uh you know and you know this is one of many, many issues the House and Senate uh, have to hash out, but uh you know it 's uh, at least some of the the talk over the last couple of days has been. Uh, you know, maybe maybe keeping the medical expense deduction because of, uh, you know, because it is such a tremendous benefit to, to families with very sick family members.
0: Larry, thanks for guiding us through a topic with so many moving pieces. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Larry Levitt is a health policy expert and senior vice president of the Kaiser Family Foundation. We talked about what the congressional tax plans mean for health care in Colorado and elsewhere. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Five American Indian tribes are suing President Trump. They filed this lawsuit hours after the president announced he'd shrink the Bears Ears National Monument in neighboring Utah.
4: Past administrations have severely abused the purpose, spirit, and intent of a century-old law known as the Antiquities Act. This law requires that only the smallest necessary area be set-aside for special protection as national monuments.
0: Trump, of course, also issued a proclamation to reduce the Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument, also in Utah. The Native American Rights Fund, which is headquartered in Boulder, represents three of the tribes suing over Bears Ears. And Staff Attorney Matthew Campbell is on the phone with me. Hi, Matthew.
2: Good morning, Ryan. Thank you for having me.
0: One of the three tribes you're representing is the Ute Mountain Ute here in Colorado. And these tribes have asked for courts to put an immediate hold on the president's actions so that no new drilling or mining permits can be issued before this is settled legally. Uh, I'll ask you briefly to take us to Bears Ears and tell us what's there and why it's so important to these tribes.
2: Sure, Ryan. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, Bears Ears is, is really it's a homeland for the native people, for the Hopi, the Navajo, the Ute, and the Pueblo of Zuni. It's a place that's integrally tied to their cultures, um, just like Christians, Muslims, and, and Jewish people have creation stories about Jerusalem and other areas. The five tribes in this region have stories that date back since time immemorial about the Bearsers region, and so really this area is an integral part of their culture and who they are as a people. It's a place that they can go to gather herbs and medicines, to hunt and fish. They still go there today, the to have ceremonies there and to pray and to honor their their ancestors that lived there long ago so really this is a place that because it's so tied to who they are as a people it's tied to their history and to their cultures it's one of the most important places for native people and for indian country at large and so when Bears Ears was attacked, they they moved very quickly to have that set aside and, and declared unlawful.
0: I mean, it's interesting because the administration point paints a different picture. Uh, the Antiquities Act is meant to protect both natural and cultural treasures, and in Trump's proclamation to modify Bears Ears, he says some of the artifacts identified when the monument was established are quote not unique to the monument, or are not of significant or historic interest. Uh, The proclamation also says that many of the objects are not in danger. Uh, What evidence do you have that this is unique and, uh, in a way, more important than other lands in the West to these tribes?
2: Sure. Well, we wholeheartedly disagree with that assertion um, there. If you look at some of the sites that were left out or purportedly left out from protection now, you know, the Bears Ears reduction or revocation that President Trump issued reduces it or replaces it with something that's 85 percent smaller than what it was. So there's a lot of areas that were left out now from protection. There are certain um, ancient dwellings and, and, and buildings such as a kiva. Uh, very important kivas that are still used by the Pueblos today in their ceremonies. And there's some of these ancient kivas that are left out. There's rock art and other um, rock art formations that were left out that, that date back since time immemorial and provide certain insights to the tribes about their cultures and who they are. And these items were left out from the new proclamation that Trump issued on Monday, and so um, The other aspect to the reduction is you talked about the protections, and so what it does is it will open this area up for greater looting and grave robbing and other um, harassment to these sites. It also opens up the area to mining and oil and gas development and other types of development as well.
0: I'll say that the five tribes are not the only ones suing. In fact, uh, late Wednesday, the outdoor clothier Patagonia announced that it was filing suit And a Colorado-based climbing advocacy group joined in that suit, Boulder's Access Fund. So indeed, uh, the administration wants to reduce the 1.3 million acre Bears Ears Monument to less than 23% of that area. And uh, as we heard, the Antiquities Act of 1906 is at the heart of this case. It gives presidents the authority to establish national monuments, not uh, apparently to reduce or modify them without Congress. But what do you say to Trump's assessment that previous presidents have abused the law to put massive amounts of land under government control?
2: Well, I think there's a little bit of a misconception about that, Ryan. When you look at the history behind the Antiquities Act, there are many places of of major importance to the United States. That were protected under the antiquities act and, and one example is the Grand Canyon. It was first protected under the Antiquities Act and it was probably one of the first national monuments that was created, of course, because of its importance, it was later turned into a national park and everyone knows that the Grand Canyon is ma- is of major importance um, and so the other thing to mention is, like you, like you said, the, the Antiquities Act provides the president with the authority to create national monuments, but not to modify them. And so Congress was clear in what it was doing when it enacted the Antiquities Act by providing the president with authority to create national monuments, but not to modify or shrink them once they've been created. And
0: yet this isn't the first time a president has shrunk a national monument using executive power, right? I mean, in 1912, President Taft eliminated a small portion of what was then Mount Olympus National Monument in Washington state. Uh, Years later, President Wilson shrunk the monument by half. And President Coolidge removed this section in 1929. Uh, here in Colorado, this is interesting, President Eisenhower modified the Great Sand Dudes National Monument. So what, what's different? I mean, is it just that this hasn't been tested legally?
2: Well, Ryan, it hasn't been tested legally, for one, and, and there have been a few modifications in somewhat unusual circumstances. But in the 1970s, Congress passed and confirmed its understanding when it passed the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, FLIPMA, And through FLIPMA, what Congress did was it confirmed that it was reserving to itself the authority to modify and revoke withdrawals for national monuments created under the Antiquities Act. And since that statute was passed, and since Congress clarified that when it passed FLIPMA, no president has attempted to take this type of action. And really, no president has tried to revoke a national monument to the extent that President Trump has here in this unprecedented manner of really reducing it by 85 percent, which effectively is a revocation.
0: I imagine that this is in part what will be tested in the courts. I'd like at this point to hear from the Secretary of the Interior. Secretary Zinke held a press conference earlier this week, and he told reporters this shrinking is not about energy, and he rebuked the claim that the president stole the land.
5: No one loves public land more than I. But what I do love is public lands being available for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. We disagree vehemently on shutting roads down, shutting access down. In one case of the review, all motorized vehicles was stopped until a transportation plan was put in at a time undetermined, and it had effect of even stopping groomed trails for cross-country skiing.
0: I have a question about Secretary Zinke's assertion that he met uh, with the tribes and that this was an open discussion. What's your sense of that?
2: Well, I I think Secretary Zinke really was just trying to check off the box, and, and it was really a sham process to you know just say that they did meet with the tribes. When he went out to Utah initially, he met with the tribes and tribal representatives really for about a little over an hour, and then he spent the rest of the day and a half there meeting with the Utah state delegation and other Utah state representatives. So the, the purported meeting with the tribes really was somewhat of a sham process, and, and of course they did not take into consideration what the tribes told them, because when the tribes met with the administration, they voiced their major concern about any modification to the monument as it was established and opposed any such actions.
0: I'll say that Secretary Zinke has recommended keeping federal land removed from national monuments under federal management. And he has also recommended three new national monuments, uh, one in his home state of Montana, as well as Kentucky and Mississippi. Is this a sovereignty question at all, Matthew Campbell, from the Native American Rights Fund? I know that uh, Bears Ears is adjacent to tribal lands, much of it already federal land, but do, do you see this as a question of, of Indian sovereignty to some to some regard?
2: Well, the bearsers National Monument was the first national monument that was established at the request of Native nations. And it's a place that's so important and so powerful that it brought the five tribal nations together to advocate as, self, as governing bodies for its protections. And so President Obama did a wonderful job of treating the tribes as sovereign governments, as the United States should, in that government-to-government relationship. And the Trump administration has come in and not really taken that same approach and dealt with the tribes on that government-to-government basis The tribes requested a meeting with President Trump to talk to him before he took any actions, and that request was denied. And so it really is a matter of sovereignty based on this historical dealings between the Native nations and the United States.
0: I want to thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, Ryan.
0: Matthew Campbell, senior staff attorney with the Native American Rights Fund, or NARF. It's based in Boulder and represents three of the five tribes suing President Trump over his proclamation to shrink Bears Ears National Monument in particular. One of the world's oldest CEOs is another year older. Klaus Obermeier just celebrated his 98th birthday. He's the founder of the Aspen Skiwear Company, Sport Obermeier. In 2010, he told me about the first piece of ski clothing he made,
4: a parka from stuff he had lying around the house. I cut up my down comforter, but I had feathers in my cereal for three weeks after that. (laughs) Feathers. flying all over the place. But it worked. It looked like Michelin, man. It didn't look look very elegant. But it was warm and you could ski in it, you know. And I put a zipper on it from an old Parker I had. I took that off and put it on the new down Parker. When and where was this? That was in 1948 in Aspen. And what, what were uh, most people wearing when they went skiing in the 40s in Aspen? Well, they usually had just a... Kind of a cheap dress shirt and a cheap sweater and maybe a shell, you know like an anorak a Norwegian anorak that was not lined that was just it was made of um, cotton and nylon mixture that was it, so that wasn't very warm. no, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like skiing would have been a
0: a pretty bitter experience, yeah, a bitter cold, <laughs> yeah. Which would make you bitter, I guess. Well, so I wonder. <laughs> it could. How, how do you get the idea that well more people should have this? I mean, were, were people
4: expressing interest in it as you whizzed by? <laughs> well, the, the thing was, the, I, I had a student in my class, and he said, "Oh, Klaus, can I try that jacket once?" I said, "Sure." So he tried it, and he liked it so much, you know, kept him warm going up the fifteen-minute lift ride on the world's longest single chairlift in Aspen. And uh, he said, I'll, I'll buy it from you for $350. I give you $350. I said, wow, that's a lot of money because you could buy a new Buick at that time for $1,250 <laughs> with radio. <laughs> so, so that gave me the courage then the next summer to go back to Munich. Uh, I had a friend there that had a bedding factory and I asked him, to make me down parkers, He said, oh, hell no, I, I'm not making parkers. I make pillows and comforters. And so we went down to the Hofbrauhaus and we had a few beer and that softened him up enough. He said, okay, I'll make you these parkers, but you got to get me the little uh, knitted wristbands and you got to find the zippers for it which I didn't. So he made me 75 of them and they were a lot better than the one I had made from the comforter, that's for sure. They looked nice. So he made them, I brought them back here and they sold like, uh, what they say, hot rolls in the morning, you know.
0: Yeah, sold like hotcakes <laughs> or cold cakes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, guess, yeah. You know.
4: yeah. <laughs> cold hotcakes. <laughs> so you eventually started production in Aspen. In other words, th- oh, yes. this was, yeah, so how did that happen? In Aspen, I had, 17 seamstresses making parkas. And we made, first we made a, a kind of a Bavarian quilt parka and that sold very well. We sold them by, by the dozen assorted to the shops, you know. I can't help but wonder why this market hadn't come along by then.
0: In other words, there were all those people f- freezing their tushes off on the slopes.
4: And when you started making this, was there was there competition to be had immediately or what? You know, At that time, like 47, 48, 49, 50, skiing was a very, very small sport in the United States. It was too small for an industry to develop to make clothing that would work for it.
0: Give me another example of an innovation that uh, Obermeyer brought to the market.
4: We did all kinds of things. We did the first mirror glasses. The first Sondheim lotion that worked at this elevation, uh, people used to just burn up in f- f- end of February, March, April. Uh, they came here for a two-week vacation. They left after two days burned up from the sunshine. And the reason why we did it was to keep the people here, you know, to So when they came for a 14-day vacation, they really spent 14 days here and didn't leave after two, three days. The the money part, and that was kind of totally secondary. The primary thing was to keep people happy that came to Aspen that were willing to learn to ski or skied already some. And so they kept coming back and brought their friends, and and we got some business. You're an aeronautical engineer by training. Uh, Yes. You moved here from... Germany
0: uh, yes. quickly became uh, enamored with with
4: skiing in this country. And how do you wind up in Aspen? Well, I knew Friedel Pfeiffer, who was running the ski school in Aspen. I knew him from racing from St. Anton in Austria. He was in San Valley at first, you know. This is uh, in he Idaho, ran the in ski Idaho. school in San Valley, Idaho. Yeah. So I wrote him when I was in New York, and he said, "Well, yeah, come on out." So I went to San Valley. And I said, where do I find Friedel Pfeiffer? They said, well, in Aspen. I said, thank you. I went from the Challenger Inn into the Aspen Chalet. said, I'd like to talk to Friedel Pfeiffer. They said, oh, he's in Aspen. I said, well, isn't this the Aspen Chalet? They said, no, no, it's a new ski resort they're doing in Colorado. It's 800 miles from here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it is because of Friedel that I came to Aspen. In those
0: very early days of the resort, you were a ski instructor. I understand you had
4: some pretty notable ski students at that point? Oh, yeah. Uh, Movie stars came here that used to go to Sun Valley. They they were enamored with the new resort of Aspen. They came here like Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman and Lex Parker and all these guys. Give me some gossip, will you?
0: Give me some gossip on, I don't know, Gary Cooper.
4: Gary Cooper, yeah, he was great. Uh, One day I was in the Jerome uh, lobby, Jerome Hotel here, and I had about six girls around me, which is nice. (laughs) Gary Gary came in and he said, Klaus, I don't know what you got that I ain't got. (laughs) So the next morning we were at the breakfast bar. Gary was sitting next to me and next to him a girl. When the girl found out it was Gary Cooper, she fainted and fell on the floor. <laughs> I said, Gary, I don't know what you got that I ain't got. <laughs> Did you get any of those uh, famous students of yours to wear Obermeyer gear? Oh, absolutely. Skiing used to be very formal. You skied in a necktie with a knickerbocker suit, you know, like in 1936, there was a guy in Bavaria that made woolen fluffball ties instead of a necktie. You know, it was way out. So that caught on and got very popular. And so I made them here. And Gary came to me and said, Klaus, I hear you went in business for yourself. I said, yeah, I make these ties. He said, you know, maybe maybe it'll help you if I put one on. I said, yeah, I'll give you one. He said, no, I paid retail. Wow, wow. (laughs) And so he put it on and went all over the press. We ended up, in three years, we sold about 32,000 of those ties. And it died as fast as it developed also. Well, Klaus, uh, thanks very much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. And I hope we can ski together sometimes when you come up here.
0: Oh, that would be very nice. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Klaus Obermeier is founder and CEO of Sport Obermeier. He's now 98. When inmates at Denver's jails get visitors, they don't meet across a table. Instead, there are rows of screens and a telephone to video chat. But as CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports, that may change.
6: In East Denver, near the Stapleton neighborhood, a handful of people wait to start their visit. While the on-duty officer announces the rules, a woman named Janet sees her son's face appear on the screen. Hi, honey. Oh, good. How are you doing? We're not using Janet's real name to allow her to talk freely about her son's situation. She says the 25-year-old has been charged with first-degree murder. He's been at the county jail six months already, and video visits aren't cutting it. He's having an emotional breakdown right now because he can't wait to give me a hug. So he wants to plead guilty because he wants to go to prison so that he can give me a hug again. Janet doesn't want her son to plead guilty, but the isolation has been terrible for his mental health. She says he's tried to kill himself multiple times. Why do you think that physical touch for him is so important? Um, It is for everybody. Can you imagine being in a cell all by yourself and only being out for a couple hours every day? I mean, I couldn't handle it. Could you? And Janet's son is innocent, at least in the eyes of the law, until proven otherwise. Most of the jail's population is made up of pretrial inmates, and that's one of the issues Nick Mitchell has with the video-only visitation policy at the jails.
5: We shouldn't be punishing people who are innocent until proven guilty unnecessarily.
6: Mitchell is the independent monitor for the city, overseeing the police and sheriff department. He says the policy applies to all inmates, including some who are serving years. For those who are parents, their only contact with their children has Been over a video screen.
5: Depriving inmates of of in person visits simply isn't humane. You know, it it has uh, particular impacts on children of incarcerated parents, and it was my view that, you know, we need to do whatever we can to minimize, you know, the trauma associated with incarceration on innocent family members and, and innocent children.
6: Mitchell wants the department to reinstate in person visits and cites multiple studies that show the positive impacts of them. One finds they can help decrease the chance of an inmate committing another crime by up to 30 percent. And the sheriff's department agrees with the monitor. In response, Jail Division Chief Elias Diggins has put together a working group that meets for the first time today to explore the possibility.
5: Jails are now understanding why In-person contact visitations are so important to the folks that are in our custody, as well as their family and friends, in ensuring that they stay connected um, and that they have folks that they can lean on when they're released.
6: His views are in line with the American Correctional Associations. They say video should not be the only visitation option. But in Denver, there is an issue. In 2005, when construction started on the new downtown jail, Diggins says the mindset was video visitation only there were issues with domestic violence and contraband being snuck into the facilities. So the city jail wasn't built with in-person meeting spaces.
5: Being a person that's been with the department for 23 years and um, being involved in jail construction, I can tell you that it would be extremely difficult to change the downtown facility.
6: Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod says that was an oversight, and she may introduce a bill on the subject. What we do
2: want to do is make sure that we don't create a situation where in the future we're creating more jails that
6: don't have the uh, capability for in-person visitation. And because of that that faulty design, we now have to go back and create new solutions that will cost money. Chief Diggins says in-person visits would be easier out at the county jail, where there's more space flexibility, and where people are serving longer sentences. He says it's also a priority to update the jail's more than 10-year-old video technology.
5: Think about what kind of phone you had 10 years ago or 12 years ago. I think I might have Still had a flip phone.
6: The city is moving ahead with a $1.4 million contract to update the system. It would allow loved ones to video chat inmates from home for a fee. It would also connect the two jails, so visitors could go to whichever is closest to them. Back at the county jail, Janet says getting there isn't the hard part. It's being only allowed to see her son on a screen. I mean, to be able to hug him again is just beyond belief. There's not a date that did not go by that he did not give me a hug and a kiss. That was totally ripped away from me. There's no timeline for when the policy might change. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News.
0: And that's Colorado Matters for today. Remember, we're a podcast. You can subscribe through your favorite podcast service,
5: including iTunes, and we're on NPR One.